good to be back after a week at uh, Polishing the Pulpit in Tennessee. It's a wonderful time to, just for me this time, to just sit and soak it up. Caleb had to uh, speak a number of times, so he had mixed duty uh, there. But uh, it's just a wonderful opportunity and occasion and uh, I would just remind us that the congregation has a subscription to uh, PTP 365. You can get access to that through the bulletin or through the announcement slides that rotate. And there are just thousands of lessons from that event on there that you can take advantage of. And the, the church uh, pays that expense uh, for uh, your benefit. On the screen before us, as is typical, we have the mission statement of the congregation, strengthening our family and influencing our community by embodying the truth in love. And you, as a member here, well know that Caleb and I have tried to preach sermons this year that uh, pertain to that focus for the congregation. And so this morning's sermon falls into that category of, of emphasis and specifically, the title for the sermon this morning is Proclaiming the Truth About the One Church in Love. You know, as we think about this, I want us to try to rewind in our minds as best as we can to the first century. We weren't there, but if we can try to work our way backwards, I think it would be of great benefit for us as we enter into this study. One of the neatest uh, inventions or makings available, I guess we could say, uh, to us in the technology world is uh, the work that's done with Google Earth and how you can work backwards in time looking at a specific area on uh, the Earth. And I have, at times, perhaps in boredom, uh, use that tool to work backwards through history just to see the landscape change of a particular area. You can look at this community even and see as you erase the development that has taken place back to a, a previous period. Now, disclaimer, Google Earth doesn't go all the way back to the first century. Uh, that may or may not come as a surprise to to some of us, but I think we can go back and look at and assess the state of the church as it existed in the first century. If we could do that, and if we could set our focus on that, and if we had a tool at our disposal that would allow us to visibly watch the landscape change, I know what we would see we would see religious groups that exist in our world today disappear one by one as we work backward to the first century. I know that because that's exactly how they've come into existence, one by one since the first century. And if we could work backwards, we would see, we would discover as the Bible portrays that the church wherein salvation is found is just one. There was just one. 
And what we see today in our world is not the product of what was preached in the first century. It has come about by the work of men. This is not a popular message, but we are biblically charged to preach it. And if we are going to fulfill our mission as it has been specifically laid out for us by the elders of this congregation. If we're going to strengthen our family here, and if we're going to influence our community, we're going to do it most effectively by embodying the truth in love. And especially is that true with regard to the nature of the church that we read about in the Bible. I would invite you to consider... Our role and responsibility as Christians in proclaiming the truth about the one church in love. Three points of observation this morning as we uh, take on this topic. The first one is this, a question we should ask. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus preach? What did he put forth about the church? The first instance of this is found in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 where Jesus promised to build it. And you might remember on that occasion, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I the son of man am? And they rehearsed before him all of the popular opinions about his identity. And Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter was vocal on that occasion and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, based upon that confession of his identity, made a promise on that occasion. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I say also to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, not on Peter, but upon the bedrock confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Very specific language about what Jesus intended to do. He said he would build my church or his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say, I will build a vast landscape of churches that meet the needs and the desires of all people and the gates of Hades will not prevail against them. That's not what he said. What he said is, I will build my church, just one. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When we look at the growth and the propagation of that church that he promised to build in the book of Acts, we see a number of insightful statements with respect to it. I think of Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 where the Bible says now Saul was consenting to his death, that is the death of Stephen. And at that time a great persecution arose against the church. Notice the singular nature of it, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. I think about 11, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. And when they had found him, they brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church 
and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You see in this, there's no reference to the churches in this particular city. There's no effort or attempt to clarify which one, because if we were to erase what has developed through time, all the way back to the first century would have one church. Just one, because that's what Jesus promised to build. And he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Now, there are passages in the Bible that talk about churches, like Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. But what's the nature of the plurality of that designation in that passage? Well, listen. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Why churches? Well, it's talking about the geographic locality of these groups of assembled believers. Not different groups. In fact, if you keep reading that passage in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, he says of the churches that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. They weren't different groups assembling under different ideas and perspectives and pleasures. These were geographic localities where the church existed, hence the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And so except for references to the geographic nature of the church, hence churches, the church is referred to as singular in nature because Jesus promised to build one church, the church, my church, and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Jesus' blood was shed to purchase the church. That's the language of the Bible, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, where Paul tells the Ephesian elders, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. There's no attempt in New Testament scripture to define more specifically which church than just the church, unless there's a geographic place attached to it. The church at Jerusalem, the church in Samaria, the church of Galilee, because there was only one. And if we could erase the landscape of religious denominations today all the way back to the first century, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we would see. It's just one. God did not create what we see in existence today. Jesus did not promise to build what we see in the religious world today. And Jesus' blood did not purchase religious entities that were started by men. He purchased with his blood the one that he promised to build the one against which the gates of Hades would not prevail. The synonymic nature of church and body in Scripture, in particular in the New Testament, is restrictive. What do I mean? Well, the church and the body are terms that are used interchangeably. And you and I would not conclude, well, Jesus has many bodies. He's a head over many bodies. That represents a deformity. That's not natural. 
for a head to have multiple bodies. And we have this metaphoric language to help us appreciate the relationship and nature of Jesus to the church. It's like a head to a body. And the body does and conforms to what the head says it must do, it should do. For instance, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Not he is the head of the bodies, the churches, but the body, the church, just like my church and it. All singular in nature. And what about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5? There is one body and one spirit, just as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One. Just like all of these other entities are one, so it is with the church. We don't expect that there's two Holy Spirits. We don't expect that there's two Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't expect that there are two God the Fathers. There's just one. And so what's the meaning of one in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, if it doesn't mean one? When Jesus spoke of the church and through the teaching that he gave through to the apostles and through the guidance given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles so they could preach all truth, we get the sense of the nature of the church in the first century that there was just one. One body, one church, and Jesus is the one head over that entity. Now, our second point of observation this morning is this. We need to look at the current state and sinfulness of the religious landscape. We need to look at the current state and sinfulness, don't miss that part, of the religious landscape that exists today. You know, it's impossible today to have a casual conversation with someone and speak of the church without clarifying which one. You know, people will ask questions, what member, what church are you a member of? And they're, they're rarely talking about geography. When they ask that question, they're talking about denomination. And some people in response, to that question will give the name of a denomination that has been made by men. Uh, some people will say, well, I'm non-denominational. But really, the biblical perspective is we're just undenominational. We, we are not part of the religious landscape that exists today because we take our history all the way back to that erased landscape of the first century where there was just one church. And you can do that. By teaching the very same thing that was taught in that time period in the church's existence, by calling ourselves just Christians, by identifying ourselves with the head over that church that we seek to be members of, Jesus Christ, it is possible to speak in the language of singularity and to be very specific 
about our connection with the first century church and not identify ourselves with the mess that exists in the religious world today. How did we get this way as a world? How did the world get to be like it is religiously? Well, there are a number of things that play into that. First is a disrespect and a departure for the authority of Scripture. That, that's the first way, and not that there's a specific order that these are followed in, but that seems to be at the, the top of the ladder here. A departure from authority. You see, when you approach the idea of the church from the perspective of religious authority, you and I understand that we must have authority for what we do in religion in practice. And so if the scripture has not authorized us to identify ourselves by something other than the head of the church, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't call ourselves after men. We shouldn't call ourselves after a particular practice in which we engage. We should just simply call ourselves by what we can find in New Testament scripture. And we read about the church of Christ in Scripture. Acts chapter 16 and verse 16, the churches of Christ even. Again, the plurality representing the geographic dispersion of the body of believers. And so authority, when you abandon authority, you abandon the church of the first century. And that's how you end up with different religious groups believing and practicing different things because not all are adhering to that standard of authority, the New Testament scripture. Worship practice is another way in which religious groups get divided. And this is especially true with regard to the religious landscape of our day. Just think of all of the different ways the simple New Testament worship practice has been changed. A change from an emphasis on God and glorifying and honoring him to entertainment and doing things in the worship environment that attract and appeal to people's sense and need for pleasure and satisfaction. The additions that have been made to the music that is uh, rendered supposedly to God in religious worship has at its motivation, the desire to please people. And that divorced from a consideration of what God has asked for and what he has desired. In John chapter 4, God, Jesus said that God desires people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And we typically translate that or, or understand that as this. People who come to God and worship with the right attitude and according to what the scripture says. Our practice has to be right and our attitude has to be right. We can come to worship before God and do everything by the numbers. And our worship still be in vain because our attitude about it was wrong. Our heart wasn't in it. We weren't giving it to God with a heart filled with gratitude for him. And so our worship could be just as bad 
even when it had all of the pieces that are prescribed. But flip it over. You could have a heart full of zeal, enthusiasm, with a big smile on your face, grateful to be here, divorced from the things that the Bible says are authorized in worship, and that's wrong. It has to be in spirit and in truth. We have to do it the way God has prescribed with the attitude that he desires from us. But the religious landscape looks the way it does because people have abandoned one or both of those. We have different religious groups today based upon the understanding of leadership in the body of Christ. The New Testament sets out qualifications for those who would lead, be elders in the church. But some have found those too difficult to adhere to, and so they've changed. Or some have looked at the pressure that is placed upon the church by society and have changed or conformed their practice based upon that pressure. We don't have the right to do that. The only thing we have the right to do is exactly what God has commanded us to do. And in Titus and 1 Timothy, God lays out very clearly the qualifications for those who would serve in leadership roles in the body of Christ. But I point all that out to show again why we have so many different churches, why we have so many different religious groups. It's not because God is unclear. It's simply because people have abandoned what God has said with respect to these matters. Our theological understanding of Scripture often contributes to the division that exists and takes place in the religious world today. And I'm reminded of, again, a statement made by the Apostle Paul to the elders from Ephesus. When he gave his charge to them, he said this, very sobering statement. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to what end? To draw away disciples after themselves. If you can rewind the state of the church all the way back to the first century and you could play it in slow motion and watch all of these other religious groups that didn't exist then come into existence, what you would see is men and women, perhaps, teaching perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And it would at least be an interesting exercise to walk through that and see exactly how that happens. It's kind of dumbed down or... We're made numb to it because it didn't just happen overnight. It's happened over a process of time. But that's exactly what we would see. We would see churches, religious entities coming into existence different from the first century church because people chose to teach perverse things and they drew away disciples after themselves. Division the division that exists today and has throughout history all the way back 
to the first century is the fruit of compromise and error. Compromising truth and adopting error. I know that because the scripture warns us that that's exactly what would happen. Think about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared as with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving. Listen to those who believe and know the truth. You see, there's a standard. Believe and know the truth. But what happened? Well, people departed from it and taught lies and seduced others to follow them. And then with a seared conscience, there's no regret, no remorse, no interest in turning back to the New Testament pattern for the way things ought and must be. Think about what Paul said as early as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's language today that people would say is impossible. I mean, think about it. Speak the same thing, no divisions among you, perfectly joined together, the same mind and the same judgment. And people would say impossible, but it's not impossible. It's possible when we stick to the standard that we've been given in the New Testament. And it's only when we depart from that that we end up with a religious confusion that we see in our world today. And so division is the fruit of compromise and error. It's not the result of people following truth. To be satisfied with this, though, is to embrace error. I mean, what we could just say, well, that's just the way it is. That's just what we're stuck with. And so we might as well find a way to make the most of it, to go along and get along in the process. But to be satisfied is to embrace it. Again, think about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. There's one church, and Paul is talking about the unity that we should have together in the body of Christ. These ones in Ephesians chapter 4 bring us together, not separate us. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to what you are called in one body and be thankful. You see, the peace of God among people is tied to our having been called together in one body. And the fact that we don't have peace in the religious landscape today, that we have all the different opinions and ideas that we have, is because people in general have left the idea and the concept of one body. And I know how they often explain that. They'll say, well, there's still just one body, 
but you have all of the different churches that make up the one body. That's not congruent with Scripture because Scripture uses the terms body and church interchangeably. The body, the church, not the body made up of the churches. You just simply cannot twist and contort the Scripture to make it fit what men have created in the religious world today. To be satisfied with what we see in our world is to fail ourselves and to fail those who need the gospel and who need to be a part of the church that Jesus Christ promised to build. Why is that so important? I think an analogy is in order here or some metaphoric comparison. How many arcs were there? There was just one, just one ark. Why just one? Because that's all God needed to save the people whom he intended to save. He didn't say, build an ark for people who think this way, build an ark for people who think this way, and then build an ark for all others, and then leave a pile of materials there in case we missed some persuasion. One ark. And all of the people who were saved had to be in that one ark. And that is a perfect analogy for the church today. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When the gospel was preached on Pentecost, the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ, one church came into existence. Why just one? Because God doesn't miss anything. God knew what was needed for salvation and he planned before the foundation of the world one entity, one vessel in which he would save those who would believe and obey the truth. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 again reminds us that that church was purchased with the blood of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23 says of Jesus that he, like the husband, is the head of the wife. He is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, if you were starting out fresh today and you had in your mind, I know what the Bible says about Jesus being the Savior of the body. And I've read in Scripture that the body is the church and the church is the body. But how do I figure out which one? The only way to do that is to rewind all the way back to the first century to a time when there was just one and see what they did, what they said, what they practiced, what made them the church of the New Testament and then find that church. And more specifically, look for one that follows the authority of the New Testament. Look for one that worships according to the New Testament pattern. Look for one that's organized according to the New Testament pattern. Look for one that believes and interprets and understands Scripture the way that that first century church did. The current state and sinfulness of the religious landscape is a mess. And it's not what God prescribed for his church. And you and I need to know that because there are some present this morning who are members of that church. 
But our aim and our goal is to strengthen our family, to sure up, to solidify, to strengthen your faith in the concept of one church by embracing the truth in love. There very likely may be some present this morning who are not members of the church. It is our charge and task to influence our community by embodying the truth in love as well. So to benefit ourselves and to benefit those who need to know about this church, we preach this message in truth and love. Number three, as we close this morning, how, how do you combat the error that exists with regard to the church in a loving way. How, how, do you, how do we do that, brothers and sisters? How do we preach the truth, defend against the error, and do it in a loving way? Let me give you four recommendations that I believe meet this need and that we can engage in and practice without a lot of effort, quite frankly. Here's the first one. Don't assume that everyone in error understands the truth regarding their error. Don't assume that people are in the religious danger that they are in by their conscious, educated choice. Some people just follow family into man-made churches. Some people are just reaching and grasping for something that they can grasp and hold on to and they found the wrong thing so we would do a world of good in our evangelism if we would not look at people automatically and assume that they understand the truth about the error that they have embraced here's the second one don't be guilty of knowing less about the truth than they know about their error we preach sermons like this to remind us that what we practice religiously, we do because that's what the Bible says. We're not like man-made religions. Our first appeal is to Scripture, and our conviction is to Scripture and what it says about the church. And we don't change that and modify it based upon the pressures that we face externally. But you and I need to know about the nature of the church. We need to understand it so that we can teach it correctly or we're no better than the people who have embraced error because in essence, we've just embraced something because that was the option that we embraced. So we need to know the truth. We need to not be guilty of knowing less about the truth than lost people in man-made churches know about the error that they embraced. Number three, we need to highlight Jesus' loving, prayerful formula for religious people. In John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, in Jesus' prayer, not the model prayer, but the prayer he made, to the heavenly father, he said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
people who are brought up listening to fluffy, void, empty proclamations supposedly from God's word when they are introduced to the kind of preaching that the New Testament church had, they notice a difference. And you and I need to trust that people, when they hear the truth, will embrace it as such. But we can't stand in the way of the power of the gospel. At least we shouldn't. We can stand in the way if we're not careful. But if we will highlight Jesus' attitude about the church, his intention for the church, his purpose for the church, what he did for the church, and we show people that his intention was just to have one united group of people who believed the same thing and spoke the same thing and that the Son of God prayed exactly for that in a very loving way, then we shouldn't feel guilty for doing the same. We shouldn't feel guilty or we shouldn't be ashamed for preaching and teaching that there's just one church, one entity in which God intends to save people. And that group of people are united based upon what the Bible says about that church. And number four, you and I need to promote the one true church through our word, our action, and our life. Don't be ashamed to preach it. Don't be ashamed to live it. And don't be ashamed to teach people and lead them to the church that Jesus purchased with his blood and intends to save one day. Just some closing thoughts here as we wrap all of this up. The easiest thing for members of the church to do is coexist religiously. That's easy. Just coexist with the religious landscape and pretend that we're part of what exists today. The worst thing members of the church can do is just coexist religiously. People need to see a difference because there is. If you're a member of the Lord's church, the church that Jesus built, the one he purchased with his blood, it's not arrogant or haughty to say that you are on the only vessel of salvation. The only one. And then we need to, with firm footing, lovingly throw out the lifeline to those who are having trouble finding it for themselves. May God help us when it comes to the nature of the church that Jesus built and purchased with his blood. Labor to strengthen our family and our commitment and our understanding of that church and our membership in it. And to influence our community in a way that they can know it and see it. And to do that simply by embodying the truth about the church in a loving way. May God help us to do just that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to obey the gospel because that's God's prescribed manner in which you enter into that church. You don't join it. God adds you. When you hear the gospel and believe it and you repent of your sins, confessing your faith in Christ, and when you are baptized in water to wash away your sins, 
the Lord adds you to the church. You're translated from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom, the church of his dear son. If that's your need this morning, we want to help you to that end. Maybe you're here and you want to study more. Maybe you're searching, you're looking. But things just aren't as clear as they need to be at this present moment. Just let us know. And we, we would be glad to study with you and help you to know what you need to know in order to obey the gospel and to become a member of the Lord's church. Maybe as a Christian here maybe this morning, maybe you've lived as a member of the church in shame, fear, regret. We cannot influence the community and help them embrace the need to be members of the body of Christ, the church, if we're not committed in our understanding that that's exactly what they need, if we're not clear, if there's confusion in our hearts and minds about the religious landscape and we think maybe this is okay with God, we need to go back to the Bible and we need to study and learn the true nature of the church that Jesus promised to build, that he did build, and the one that he will save one day. We're not going to help others if we haven't helped ourselves in that regard. We have the courage to preach in a very loving way the one true church of the New Testament. If you're subject to the invitation this morning in any way, will you come as we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.